Today's reading comes from all over the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 11, verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let me introduce myself to you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Brent. I'm one of the members of the team here at Christ City Church. I'm usually out at Christ City Kits. Um, that's where my home neighborhood church is. Uh, but it's my pleasure to be here with you today. Many of you I recognize, many of you I don't. So um, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Uh, but as we jump in, we do need to ask that the Lord would help us. We don't believe that, that this just happens because a preacher can you know, give the, the word of God. We need to have the Holy Spirit help us. So would you, would you pray with me as we do that? Father, we come before you and we ask uh, that you would, in your great mercy, that you would work powerfully by your Holy Spirit. And that you would cause us to see Jesus, uh, to, to, to love him, to rejoice in him, to be changed by him, to see what your word says and to see that it's true and to be convicted and to be led to repentance so, we be, so that we become more like him. Lord, we, uh, we long to see Christ City, Christ City Church grow uh, in uh, the likeness of Christ, and we know that that's something that only you can do when we ask for it, confidently, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin, I have an important question for you. How important is unity? It's pretty important, isn't it? I think we'd all agree that unity is an essential thing to our civilization, Franklin D. Roosevelt, he said it really well when he said this. He said, if civilization is to survive, we must cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples of all kinds to live together in the same world at peace. But for any of us that have tried this, we know that living peacefully with one another is no joke, is it? I mean, if you have a spouse, if you have a friend, just one, it's all you need, or a sibling, or if you don't live in a box, or maybe if you have been watching the news and you know there's a global trade war happening and that there are protests in Hong Kong, you know that this isn't easy. Living peacefully is difficult. It's hard. I think it's hard because we're really good at being acquainted with one another, aren't we? Like if you're my barista, I can say hi to you and smile Every morning, as long as you make my coffee just so, right? That's no problem. But if we go a little deeper, if we get into a relationship together, this interesting thing happens. I start to get to know you. You start to get to know me. And there's all kinds of things that I get to know that I don't like very much. And that you don't like about me very much. And it gets messy. And moreover, as we get to know one another in relationships, we have the opportunity then to come into conflict with one another. To see one another no longer as just acquaintances, but as someone that is an obstacle to what I want. You are now the competition. I think this is why renowned philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, why he said this. This is one of my favorite quotes, so please don't judge me too much. He said this. He said, hell is other people. Straight to the point. I'm sure he was a really cheerful guy and had lots of friends. Here's the thing. In Vancouver, we like to talk a lot about unity, don't we? We talk about it. But there's a hypocrisy that I think we don't even pay attention to. And the hypocrisy is, what about 
my family life? What about my actual friendships? I have this big idea of unity, but what about my friendships? What do they say about me? What about my work relationships? Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Why is this so hard? What's going on here? How come we're so terrible at the science of human relationships that Roosevelt talked about? We're terrible at peace and unity because no matter what system we put in place, whether it's socialism or capitalism or progressivism or feudalism or chauvinism or feminism or vegetarianism or any other ism, the problem with those things and with us is that we are all immersed in selfism, that we're at the center. Unity and peace are essential. They're essential in this world and we're in short supply because we love ourselves more than we love one another. That's the heart of the issue. So is that it then? Are we just out of luck? We're going to be destined for some apocalypse because we can't get along? Is that what's going to happen? Is there anywhere we can go to, to be instructed? Well, thankfully, the Bible actually has a lot to say about unity. The Bible can help us here. And the book of Proverbs in particular can help us as we consider unity this morning. So, psych. I know last week Jake said that it was the last Proverbs sermon, and he and I obviously didn't connect, so here's another last Proverbs sermon. <laughs> I, I promise it will be the last one this time. Um, I, I, at least I think it will be, <laughs> as far as I know. Uh, and the book of Proverbs, as we've been learning, is all about wisdom. We've been learning that wisdom is living skillfully the right way within God's created order, within his created universe. And the awesome thing about Proverbs is that as we look at it, we kind of open up the operating instructions for humanity about how to learn to live together in unity. It can help us here. It can help us here. And we'll see this morning that the wise and the righteous person in Proverbs contributes to the unity of their community in three ways. Number one, that they're committed to peace. They're committed to peace. Two, they're committed to blessing. And three, they're committed to steadfast love. So we'll see the way the wise, righteous person is committed to peace, to blessing, and to steadfast love. So let's just jump in together then by first considering the way that the wise and the righteous person is committed to peace. So how, do, how does this happen? Well, in a few different ways. And first off, according to Proverbs 26, verse 17, a commitment to peace is going to mean that you and I learn to resist getting involved in arguments that aren't our own. Basically, Proverbs 26, 17 is a warning to get off Twitter. It's been said a few times in the last three years to certain people to get off Twitter, but I want you to realize that Proverbs said it first. Look at it with me. It says, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. In Vancouver, you have lots of opportunities to grab dogs by the ear. I would recommend to you that you don't do that. If you've tried, you know that it didn't work out very well for you. One of those Proverbs is getting at is that we struggle actually with unity in part because we're tempted all the time to grab dogs by the ear, to get involved in other people's business. And in fact, in a lot of ways, this is how social media works, isn't it? There's a sense in which entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs, have capitalized on our appetite for gossip. And not only that, but the temptation to get yourself carried into the lives of other people uh, it's this deep, deep thing. And it's even become, in our society, a way to show that you're a righteous person. Right? If I comment very carefully in extended form on what's happening in this person's life, it will show all these other people how righteous I am. Right? When we're getting involved in arguments that aren't our own. 
But the temptation to get ourselves involved in the lives of other people, it goes so much further than those carefully crafted statements about celebrities and heroes and politicians. Social media can also pull us into the lives of our old friends and our old acquaintances that we don't even really know anymore and we never talk to. So this happened to me recently. This happened last summer in this really significant way. It was a, it was a hard situation. I was, you know, on social media as one does. And I noticed that an old friend of mine, somebody that I never talked to anymore, their lawyer life had kind of diverged uh, from where it ought to go. And as I, you know, was kind of aware of what was happening, I kept going back to see what's the update, what's going on, what's happening in their life as they're getting into some more shady and shady practices. And as they were involved in those shady practices, I realized I'm talking to other people about my friend, my old friend, this person I hardly know anymore. I've talked to mutual friends about them, but what I didn't do was talk to them face to face. And I was so convicted by that. And I I realized I need to call this person and I need to apologize for the way that I've been talking about them without ever showing my concern for them by talking to them face to face. I was deeply convicted. The thing is, getting involved in other people's lives, it appeals to this thing in us that's just sinful and dark. We want to whisper about other people. We want to do it. We love involving ourselves in issues that aren't our own. That's why Proverbs 26 verse 22 warns not just about getting involved, but about the very way that the temptation happens. Look at it with me. Proverbs 26 22 says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Gossip tastes good, says Proverbs. Gossip feels good, says Proverbs. If it appeals to something within us that's sinful, and in our sin, we love it. We want it. We overhear a part of a conversation we can't help ourselves. Oh, what was that you were saying? Oh, was that about so-and-so? I thought something might be going on there. Can you fill me in? What's happening? I just want to, I just want to pray for them. I'm very concerned. And the thing is, we're not really concerned. We love gossip. We love whispering. We want to hear. And let me tell you something. This is so important because when gossip takes root in a community, it tears it apart. When gossip takes root in a community, it tears it apart. Suspicions, they start to grow like wildfire. They spread. Bitternesses are left unchecked and they just kind of roll on and accumulate more and more bitterness and anger. And no one talks to one another face-to-face about these issues. But what if instead we were committed to something else, to peace instead of whispering? What would that look like? What if we were committed not to stoke the fires of gossip? Look at Proverbs 26.20. It says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. Fairly intuitive. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. When you stop talking about other people and whispering about them, the bitternesses don't have a chance to grow. When you stop carrying those conversations on and repeating them to somebody else, they don't don't tear the community apart. They just stop. The fire goes out. It's beautiful. The reality is that this is very personal for me right now because I've been wrestling with this a lot in my own life and just becoming more and more aware how this happens in such subtle ways. Just barely a word spoken that reveals my heart towards someone and repeated 
Or, you know, I might be concerned about someone and I don't really have the courage to go talk to them yet, so I talk to somebody about them first. And I've been praying, God, would you help me not to whisper? Would you help me to speak to people face-to-face to communicate your word to them directly and not to be a source of gossip that tears the community apart? So here's my encouragement to you. Next time someone brings something up to you and they say, hey, you know, I'm just really concerned about so-and-so. Would you do this? Would you stop them? Would you say, don't talk to me, please? Please don't talk to me. Have you gone and spoken to that person directly face-to-face? Would you encourage them to do that? Don't, don't allow yourself to be a recipient for that gossip. And then encourage the other person to go and talk to them face-to-face. These kinds of things are hard, isn't it? They're hard, I think, in part because we love drama. <laughs> and some of us love arguing. So actually, we, you know, we like to gossip. We also like to argue. We like fires in general. We're kind of pyromaniacs. And we don't like removing the source of the fuel. We like to add to it. It feels nearly impossible not to. Uh, look at this, actually, what Proverbs 26, 21 says about adding to the fire. Talking about quarrels and arguing. It says, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. I want to throw the fuel on. And I think we think to ourselves in those moments, hey, you know, quarrels are a kind of sport, right? I'm competitive. And I can win on the field. And I can put two and two together. That means I could probably win in the argument. You know, let, let's, let's get after it. Let's fight. It's not very nice to be around that kind of a sentiment, that kind of an arguer. Consider this quote from a master arguer. He said this about the way that he threw fuel on the fires and, and he liked to argue. He said, I found that a relentless condescension, a refusal to concede any point, and a tireless determination to prolong the dispute reliably wore out my opponents. They walked away leaving me the victor. Would you want to argue with that guy? Have you ever been that guy? I've been that guy. I've been there. I have certainly involved myself in arguments and stayed in them because I wanted to win. Because it was competitive. But here's the thing. Has that kind of argument ever changed your mind ever in your life? I'm going to guess it hasn't. Or has that kind of argument that gets competitive, has it ever built up unity with you and somebody else? I'm going to guess it never has. You know what's wrong with this approach is that it's 100% me-focused. It's about me arguing and seeking my own benefit. And no way am I concerned in that argument for your good. I just want to win. That's the problem with it. So my encouragement here is to examine your heart next time that you're in a conversation that's getting pretty intense. And ask yourself, is my goal right now to love and to care for this person? Or is my goal just to win? Is my goal to come out on top? Paul writes these convicting words to a young pastor named Titus in chapter 3, verse 10 of of the letter that has his name. It says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Don't be that person. Don't love division. Don't Pursue strife through your arguments. On the other hand, though, the righteous, wise person who loves peace, they actually have a much cooler disposition and they know how to avoid quarreling. They know how to overlook the offenses of others. Look with me at these two Proverbs. Proverbs 19.11 says this, 
Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it, is, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Or Proverbs 20, verse 3, which says, It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Look, these two verses aren't teaching us that conflict's avoidance is holy. I mean, if it were, I think there'd be a lot of saints in this room, right? At least, would, at least I'd be a saint of conflict avoiding. No, these verses don't teach us to avoid conflict. They teach us that the righteous, wise person loves unity. They teach us that because of that, he or she is committed to the peace of the community by carefully avoiding action that would stir up strife, whether that's gossip or deceitful speech or slander or arguments or anything else. They avoid it. And they certainly don't keep a record of all the wrongs they've experienced. Because they know that keeping a record of wrongs is going to add to bitterness. That counting these things up and, and burying them in heart and holding on to them is going to lead me to be divisive in my community. To break the community apart. And that's why Paul actually, centuries after Proverbs was written, he could write these words to the church in Ephesus to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace by, in chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, by bearing with one another in love. Overlooking offenses, bearing with others, it's the only way for this group of people in this room to get along together. You know why? I'll tell you a secret. You're a sinner. And I am too. And because of that, if your expectation for me is that I will somehow perfectly represent Jesus to you at every moment, let me just, you know, help get rid of that notion in your mind right now. I will sin against you as you get to know me. I will likely hurt you at some point if we get to know one another. And you will do the same to me. And within the church, our expectation then isn't that nobody will sin against us. Our expectation is that our perfect Savior will continue to love us and enable us to love one another as we receive grace and forgiveness from him. It's that Jesus' love will increase even though we are imperfect. That we'll get through it. That we can forgive because he's forgiven me. He's forgiven you. In short, the righteous wise person embraces Proverbs 10, verse 12, which says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. The second characteristic of the righteous wise person that we want to look at this morning is the way that they seek to build the unity of the community by being a blessing to it. They seek to be a blessing to it. Look at Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 to 25. It reads, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking to you this morning about money. You know, you've heard a, a great message from Paul Fast Sr. on that topic. But all I want to point out to you here is a particular orientation of the righteous wise person. What is their orientation to the community? It's this. They seek to bless others. They live their lives to seek to be a blessing to others. And that's telling. It shows you something about them. It shows you that the righteous, wise person is not coming to this community to be a consumer. They're coming to be a giver and a blessing to others, to build up the community of Christ. And their generosity will inevitably bear fruit and become a blessing in increasing ways here. And let me just say as an aside, this is actually why we have covenant membership here at Christ City Church. 
so that we can together hold one another accountable to a deeper commitment to be righteous and wise, to be unity builders as those who give our lives and blessing to others in this place where God's put us. One thing I've been thinking about lately, though, is the way that, that criticizing the church is so different from a deep commitment to the church. Have you noticed that? You'd probably be shocked to hear this, but I've actually met people who are really good at, at reading the Bible and understanding what the Bible calls us to, to be in the community of Christ. And they're really good at pointing out all the ways that this church and other churches don't live up to it. And they give themselves to the, that criticism. But ironically, they've tended to criticize from the periphery, not from deep in the community, but from the periphery of the community. They're not deeply committed. They're deeply critical. It's different. And criticism without deep participation in their lives becomes this sort of vicious cycle where their criticism leads into becoming more and more embittered. And as their bitterness grows, they become more and more alienated from the community. And as they become more alienated from the community, they become more bitter and critical again. And you kind of see this thing kind of cycling off into self-destruction. That's not good. They don't actually attain to the blessings of verse 25, which say, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. To illustrate this, I want to tell you a story. I had a buddy when I was at seminary in the United States, and, um, and this, this friend of mine, he wasn't very deeply invested or, or, or connected with the community that he was in, and he kind of didn't fit in in some ways, and he became uh, deeply uh, disenfranchised because of that. It was concerning for him. And he was a good friend of mine, even though he was experiencing these things, and he eventually came up to me one day, and he told me how his bitterness had become a bit of jealousy towards my wife and I. And he said, you know, Brand, um, I see you guys have all these friends here at the community of Christ here this, in this church, and I don't, and I'm just upset about that. I'm, I'm bitter. This is, this is hard for me. And so I told him, I, I said, brother, I mean, I probably said dude, because more was my speed. Um, dude, you know what's going on here, I said to him. I said, it's not what you think. It's not that Heather and I show up at a new community, at a new church, and try to find all the cool people that we can be friends with. We don't do that. I said, but what we did is we came here and we sought right away to figure out how can we be a blessing in this community? Who are some people that we can love and pour out our lives for? And it, by all means, like, don't be mistaken, Heather and I are sinful people. We do not do this perfectly. But we're trying to grow to be more like Jesus who gave his life to serve, not to be served. We're trying to be like him. And so my, my buddy, he heard these things from me and he heard the way that Jesus has used our imperfect obedience in mine and Heather's lives to create friendships in the most unlikely of places with the most unlikely of people. And he responded in faith to it. And you kind of see the, the wheels turning in his mind where he thought, okay, I love Jesus. I love his gospel. And I understand that Jesus gave himself in service for other people. And that means that he's called me not to imitate him and he's empowered me to give my life in service for other people. Okay, I'll do that. Check, I got it. I, I think I see the missing component here. I'll do that. And by God's grace, you know what happened? By the end of that season, by the end of our time together at that seminary, he was experiencing a deep and a rich community around him. He was reaping the blessings of becoming a blessing to other people. He repented. And he shared in the benefits of being a blessing to others. Look, we're not just called by Jesus to attend a church. We're called by Jesus to be part of his family. 
So do you think of those around you in this room as your family? Are you prepared and are you willing to share your life with them? To be a blessing with them? To care for those around you as you've been cared for by Jesus? The the wise and righteous person does. And the wise and righteous person, they don't just bless with their time and with their talents and with their treasures here in the community of Christ. They bless also by sharing their wisdom and their knowledge and becoming a guide to those around them. Look at Proverbs 12, verse 26. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. So the wise and righteous person, they love God's word. They've been shaped by God's word. They're practicing living God's word in their lives. And because of that, they become this light in the community of someone who's walking with Jesus and it's a blessing to those around them. And for me, this has been a deep blessing in so many ways because I've tried to live my life in increasing ways, watching for people, maybe stalking them is a better word, actually stalking people uh, in, the, in the church who are doing certain things well. So if you're a great parent here this morning and I get to meet you, you might find me, you know, just hanging around a little bit awkwardly too close to you to try and learn how you raise your children. Or if you are uh, someone who's married and you have uh, this great marriage and you both want to serve Jesus together and are doing a good job of that, I'm looking over your fence trying to figure out what are they doing that I'm not doing and how can I become more like them? I want to become like them. Or if you're somebody that's a generous person and you've managed to to take careful uh, attention to your finances in order to be generous to others, I try to learn from those people. I want to learn from them. And the cool thing is that Sometimes these people don't even wait for me to ask them or to stalk them. They just tell me what I'm doing wrong. It's great. They just come right up to me and say, Brent, I need to talk to you. This is not going great in your life. And after the sting and the pain subsides where my pride has been floored, it's been a huge blessing. It's been a huge blessing as I've learned from them. We need people in our lives and in this community who are willing to share with us and bless us with what we don't see about ourselves. It's something that's actually essential for us to grow in unity together and the truth of God's word. Look at Proverbs 28, verse 23. It says this, Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Don't be a flatterer. Sharing what is true in a generous way is committed to others even when it's uncomfortable for you to share with them. And I get it. I mean, I'm like you. I don't want to have that conversation with someone. You probably have people in your mind right now that you think you probably need to talk to. I've been there. It's hard. It's hard. You don't want to have those conversations. But the wise and righteous person is willing to take the short-term pain of that, that un- uncomfortable moment in order to wound somebody that they might grow in Christ Jesus. Are you willing to do that? If none of your friends are willing to say hard things to you, maybe you don't have real friends. And if you're not willing to say hard things to someone else, maybe you aren't a friend. Not in the way that this passage describes. Ultimately, because the righteous, wise person is deeply invested in blessing their community, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 is true of them. It says this. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. The, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And whoever captures souls is wise. Do you think you're wise? The Proverbs teach that the righteous, wise person has life in their wake. So they go through the community, spread life. 
They capture souls for life and for blessing. So they're committed to peace. They're committed to blessing. And then the last characteristic of the righteous wise person I want to look at this morning is the way that they pursue unity by being committed to steadfast love. So look at these two verses with me that reveal the ideal of a relationship within God's community. Proverbs 20 verse 6 says this. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Or Proverbs 19 verse 22. What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. Steadfast love and faithfulness, they have to do with a commitment towards somebody else for their benefit. A commitment for their benefit that actually endures, that is patient, that continues. It's not surprised then when difficulty enters a relationship. And as they are in relationship in a steadfast love sort of way, they're not like looking backward over their shoulder towards the door all the time. They're steadfast. And the archetype of this sort of love is God's love. Because there's one Hebrew word here that's translated steadfast love in both of these verses. And it's the Hebrew word chesed. This word chesed is used of God's faithfulness towards his people throughout all of the Old Testament. This unique faithfulness of God and his patient commitment toward them and to redeem them. The author of the children's Bible that I often read to my own children, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she paraphrases God's chesed this way. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful paraphrase. She calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that remarkable? That's a fantastic definition. Why is that a good definition? Because God hasn't been patient and steadfast in his love for humanity for only a decade or two. I mean, you'd find it really remarkable if you had just one friend who was steadfast and patient with you for two decades. But God's love and his patience and his steadfast love has endured not for a couple of decades, but for millennia. Ever since humanity first walked this planet, God has been steadfast and patient in his love toward us to bless us. He's impatient with us in order to lead us to what is good. Not sticking around only when it benefited him, but expending himself in love for us even when it cost him the death of Jesus Christ. Just think about that for a moment and then look back at Proverbs 19, verse 22, that says this. What is desired in a man, a man or a woman, a human being, is steadfast love. I mean, no kidding. Wouldn't that be great? Steadfast love, faithfulness that plays the long game, reliability and commitment to others in my community. Those things are rare, we have to admit. But to have men and women express to one another the same faithfulness in love that God has expressed toward us. I mean, that's world upending. That would transform the city. That would change this community. It's deep. Imagine with me what that would look like if we were steadfast in love toward one another here at Christ City Church. I think Proverbs 11 verse 11 would come true, which says, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. This is a situation we face. Here's the biblical calling. Here's where we're called to be in unity toward one another. And then over here is us. There's a gap in between, isn't there? I mean, it's true in my own life. There's this giant gap 
here between what I'm called to do in steadfast love and what I don't do. Because if I'm honest and you don't RSVP to the party that I've invited you to or you're flaking somewhere, I just don't want to invite you anymore. Or if you and I have some embarrassing conversation or interaction and I kind of forget your name, I'd rather not see you again. Or if you hurt me, if you hurt me, well, there goes the steadfast love. I don't want to keep going. I don't want to keep going. And I'm ashamed to say how casual my love has been for other people in my life. You know what the cause of disunity in the church and in this world is? It's a failure to be steadfast in love towards others. It's a failure in commitment to another person for their benefit. It's a failure to love peace. It's a failure to live for the blessing of others undergirded by steadfast love for them. I'm just so deeply ashamed of all the ways that I failed in this. Some of the most haunting conversations I've ever had in my life are conversations that point out where I've failed to love steadfastly. The reality is I'm part of the problem. And so are you. And so are you. Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, A faithful man who can find. It's not a very optimistic proverb. So I think our question as we conclude it is this then. The Bible calls us to this. How do we get there from here? How do we bridge the gap? How can we grow? How can we increase? This is the answer. We will only love unity and live for the benefit of others if we have first experienced the life-transforming love of Jesus Christ. We will only grow in this sort of faithfulness and blessing and unity if we have experienced the love of Jesus for us. It's the only way it's going to happen. We need to dwell then, I think, on this grace. We need to dwell on this blessing. We need to not just let it pass us by. We need to think of what we have in Jesus. Meditate on it. Rejoice in it in order to grow in it and extend it towards other people. So as we wrap up, can we do this together? Can we, can we worship together and rejoice together in the steadfast love of God? Let's do that for a few moments. How steadfast has God's love been toward humanity? Well, ever since he created us and rebelled and we rebelled against his rule over us, he's been on a mission, a mission that's been revealed layer after layer and century after century after century to redeem us. And no matter what we did, no matter how far we fled from him, he was faithful to pursue us. He was steadfast in his love toward us and his determination to rescue us from our sin. And at the right moment, God himself took on human flesh and came to us. Jesus Christ entered the world. And he perfectly loved us. He perfectly loved us. Jesus said to his disciples, greater love, steadfast love has no end than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You need to realize that God incarnate said that on earth to his friends, to human beings around him. You need to realize that by the Holy Spirit, God says that to you through Jesus Christ. You are my friend. I've loved you. He speaks it to us today. And then only a little while later, after Jesus said these things, as he waited in a garden to die for his friends, Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for you and me sitting here on a Sunday in Vancouver in 2019. And he prayed this in John 17, verses 22 to 23. He prayed... To the Father, to the Father, uh, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they might be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And then after Jesus prayed, he made unity and he made love possible as God laid down his life for us. In as much as it is possible for God to experience death, he did it in the person of Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for his friends. He loved us generously and steadfastly, though it cost him his life, though it earned him our punishment. And he did it for lonely, miserable, gossipy, quarrelsome, selfish, and fragmented people like you and I. Why? So that he could do something incredible. So that he could unite us all back together into the family that we were made for. And because of his death and resurrection three days later, he has bound us. Get this. God has bound selfish humanity to his selfless love by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. He's brought us into relationship with himself. Through his Holy Spirit then, he has freed us from slavery of every form of selfism into the never-ending, immeasurable greatness of the love of God. You know what that means for you? It means a bunch of things. It means at least this. It means that if you're a slave to self this morning, Jesus can free you to be steadfast in love like he is. It means that if you're selfish in your relationships with others, he can free you to live for the blessing of those around you. It means that if you're someone who struggles with the temptation to gossip and to quarrel and to divide in the community, Jesus can cause you to love peace and to pursue it. So my invitation to you this morning is to come to, come to him, to come to Jesus. To come experience afresh and anew his love that he's poured out for you. To, to worship it. To delight in him. To wake up every morning this week and the weeks to come praising God. God, you are awesome in love for me, a sinner. Thank you. Help me today now to live the love that you've given to me towards others. Help me to delight in your love so much that it changes what I love in this world. And so that I don't become like the things that I love out here, but I become like you who I love more than anything else and who I treasure above all things. Doing that will change you. You're always, always what you love and loving Jesus will cause you to become like him. Steadfast and faithful in love. You know, the only science of human relationships that will work to fix the problem of our disunity is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do, we worship. We just want to pause and lift our hands and our, and our hearts to you and thank you that you have pursued us, that you have loved us, that you have worked to bring us, though we were so far from you, that you brought us near through Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would fill us now with Christ Jesus and with his love so we'd be changed through your gospel. In his precious name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.